it's over 9,000! Welcome, Super Elite Warriors, to Final Forum, a podcast for the discussion of all things Dragon Ball. I am your host, Jelly, an elite recruiting member of the Frieza Force, on a mission to find the best warriors from across the galaxy to join the greatest army of all time. And I am joined, as always, by my new recruit co-host... No. No what? I refuse to just do a podcast like we're not on the precipice of an invasion and just sit here and say, this is the beginning. Hello, Bikini, and thanks everyone out there for joining us for another episode of Final Forum. You realize thousands of blood-eating plant monsters are about to descend from the sky and try to kill everyone on this planet, right? Yeah, and they're carbivore. The highest power level I've registered among them is barely 1,000. What are they going to do, bleed on us? A couple days ago, we thought Ventuvi were extinct and all remaining carbivore were almost brainless buffoons who couldn't beat children in a fight. Now we're staring down thousands invading us from within a 2v dreadnought. No. Dreadnoughts were much more highly weaponized. You said so yourself. Whatever. Still, we're staring down something we thought no longer existed, and you think there are no other surprises? The 300,000 power level coming from inside the Ventuvi has fallen off by less than half, and I can't think there are more of them still inside that thing than outside. Meaning a Ventuvi itself probably has a power level of 100,000 or so. Our airstrike cannons can handle it. Or there's some kind of fighter inside, the likes of which we've never seen from the Carbivore. A Carbivore with a fighting level of over 100,000. Who's ignoring all prior evidence now? Doesn't the existence of a Ventuvi carrier tell us there might be something going on here that we don't have all the facts to understand? Shouldn't we be at least prepared for a fight? Our ground forces are preparing, Bikini. This whole scuffle will blow over before you know it. Scuffle. No matter how many times you're proven wrong, you hold on to your delusions. It's really quite impressive. Thank you. And speaking of scuffles, while we wait and see what the Carbivore's true intentions are... True intentions? They're clearly invading! We don't know that, and we cannot be the aggressors here. Perhaps this was once their planet, and they're merely confused to find others here. Perhaps this particular group is looking for a new home. Perhaps they're providing a show of strength in order to request admission to the Frieza Force. Perhaps with more Ventuvi at their disposal. None of that explains why they would have followed us, except for the last one. Which is why it's the best possible explanation. Which is why invasion is most likely. 
Well, be that as it may, the show must go on. And as I was attempting to say earlier, that speaking of scuffles, today we'll be talking about some of Goku's scuffles as he fights his way through Muscle Tower. And we'll be talking about episodes 35 and 36 of the Dragon Ball anime today. Episodes are called Cold Reception and Major Metalatron. And it starts with Goku freezing from the cold of the environment. The little girl brings him into her house and she reveals that her name is Suno or Snow. And she helps him warm up. And that's when the scouts who've been searching the area, the Red Ribbon Army scouts, break into the house. They terrorize the couple while while Snow and her mom, they, they, they mess with some other people, but they kind of terrorize Snow and her mom while looking for Goku while he's in the bathroom. He busts out of the bathroom, beats them up, and he's like, boy, these are, these are some bad guys. And Snow's mother is like, yeah, they're from the Red Ribbon Army. They live in, or they come from that big tower over there. They have captured our village chief. They treat us like garbage. It's all very bad things. And Goku's like, I'll save you. And he he runs out, but then he realizes it's cold. (laughs) So he comes back, gets some cold weather gear. and He's not much for forethought, is he? No. (laughs) And he runs back out of the house and runs up to the entrance of Muscle Tower. And then Major Metalatron, the episode features him getting inside the, the tower, fighting off some, you know, peons and going up to the next level of the tower. Meanwhile, General White and this ninja are watching him and they're amazed like that he takes out this kind of room full of people. And they're like, don't worry, when he goes up to the next level, he'll face Major Metalatron. No one has ever beaten him. And Goku goes up to the third floor because he actually power pulls into the building and skips the first floor. Uh, so he goes up to the third floor and meets Major Metalatron and they have a big battle. And Goku like punches him and knocks him down and then he gets back up immediately. And then he starts to crush Goku and then he fires a missile out of his mouth. And Goku's like, oh, you could have hurt me with that one. <laughs> So he blasts a Kamehameha at him and blows his head off. And he's like, I didn't mean to kill him. But then Metalatron gets back up because, surprise, you know, despite the name Metalatron, uh, he's a robot. (laughs) So then they have another big battle and Goku ultimately wins by just essentially breaking more and more pieces of Metalatron until his battery runs out. And then he goes up to the fourth floor and that's how this episode ends. The full name of Muscle Tower is actually Red Ribbon Army White Core Base, but it's just known as Muscle Tower. It looks like a rook chess piece, and it's commanded over by General White. In the Japanese, he's Hawaito Shogun, which almost literally translates to General White. The Japanese use the term Hawaito to approximate white, so I guess we could say they say the H, as in white. <laughs> <laughs> as opposed All right, to <laughs> general white i'm saying what weird um weird oh come on that one doesn't even have an H in it. <laughs> so toriyama says that muscle tower resides in a snowy siberian like tundra simply because he's trying to expand 
the world of Dragon Ball. He says it would just make no sense for all the stories he tells to only take place in China, so he just sets them basically wherever he wants and has a mind to do so. But you notice he specifically name drops Siberia as the type of environment where he draws the inspiration from. And at the point he mentions it, the only snowy environment we've seen is the one around Muscle Tower. So we can surmise that we're in Siberia. And it then makes sense that the commander, since we're in a snowy white area, is General White. That makes sense. I'll, I'll, I'll buy that. I'll buy so it So the girl who rescues Goku goes unnamed in the manga, but in the anime they call her Snow. And then years later, Toriyama uses the name Snow, which is the Japanese approximation for Snow, uh, when he does finally name the character. Either he gave it to them or he just liked the name that they chose and rolled with it. I'm gonna roll uh, with I'm gonna roll with the latter of those. I mean that seems pretty on brand, for him, right? <laughs> Snow's village is called Jingle Town, but in true Toriyama fashion, rather than appear to be a bright, festive sort of place akin to the song that it's named for, Jingle Town is put upon and downbeat and generally just seems like a kind of unhappy place. Further evidence of Toriyama being inspired by Bond comes from the anime for episode thirty five, oddly enough. Uh, clearly, the anime staff is picking up what Toriyama's putting down here because the scene where Goku goes to the bathroom and the two guys shoot up the door and then he's revealed to be fine is directly inspired by a part in You Only Live Twice when Bond is folded up into a Murphy bed on the and then the walls like shot full of holes and like everyone assumes Bond is dead. Nozawa Masako, uh, who we haven't spoken about much yet, but is Goku's Japanese voice actress. Yes, that's right. Goku's played by a woman get over it <laughs> said this part left a major impression on her she found herself both nervous and then laughing at the reveal that goku was fine yeah we'll, we'll do more on her later uh, she's one of the most beloved voice actors in japan and seems like a pretty awesome lady from what little i've ever seen i can concur yeah but that the reason she's kind of surprised is because at this time in japan and in, i think in anime in general the typical method, for sure, in the U.S. is characters read a script and record a script, and then it's animated kind of around them. At this time in Japan, they are, like, essentially dubbing over an already animated sequence. So, she's watching it kind of as it happens. <laughs> so, she thought, like... That would be... That would be pretty interesting to go into work one day and you're recording your, your lines and then you're, as you're watching it, you think your character just died and you're like, well, I'm out of a job now. <laughs> but yeah, as, as we already know about Goku and mentioned, you know, when we were talking about episode 35, he's pretty willing to face his challenges just head on. He simply charges directly at Muscle Tower. He's direct. He faces his problems head first. He prefers to take immediate action and react to the situation as it requires rather than strategize and plan. He doesn't want to wind up doing nothing and thinking instead of taking action. This is something we'll see for the rest of his life as he figures out his opponent's strategies in the middle of fights and takes a long time to go full out because he doesn't spend time planning first. He has to kind of feel his way around the situation and get an idea of how to react rather than come up with the right course of action in the first place. This is also what is used really well to really good effect in in super when we talk about why do they keep bringing these much weaker characters back 
Well, Goku's like, oh, it's because you're smart. You can strategize better than me. You know, when we're in these kind of team situations, I'm not that guy. You know, I just, I react to things as they happen. I'm not like. You could you could almost say he relies on his instincts. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it's, you know, it's that he's just not a planner. But then uh, the idea of him fighting his way up this tower is inspired by kung fu movies and video games. And it shows Toriyama's abilities to blend cultures throughout his work. And Toriyama himself even says, quote, At the time, there was a game for Famicom called Spartan X that I often played. Strong enemies came at you real quick and you beat them up. It was even based on a kung fu movie. So Spartan X is the Japanese name for a Jackie Chan movie. Uh, called Meals on Wheels, which we already pointed out is where Launch's character design comes from. He stars Jackie Chan, Yuan Biao, and Sa- Samo Hung. I-, I hope I got those names right. Yeah. And the finale takes place in a huge Spanish castle with lots of floors. The game was created by Nishiyama Tak- Takashi, uh, who would go on to later create Street Fighter. And the game involves climbing up a five-floor pagoda to rescue your kidnapped girlfriend, defeating martial artists and final bosses on each floor. Now, if you're a millennial or later, you might think that obviously the Spartan X game is inspired by the Spartan X movie. It stands to reason, right? What you don't realize, unless you're an older millennial, which they exist. Don't ask me how I know this. I just know they do. (laughs) Is that the 80s and 90s were a madhouse when it comes to adapting things. You could slap a franchise's name on something and it could just be whatever you wanted. And it didn't have to have anything damn near to do with the source material. For an excellent example of this, just look at the Super Mario Brothers movie. <laughs> There's nothing about that movie is anything like the actual Super Mario Brothers, but it is what it is. Uh, the Spartan X game was inspired by Bruce Lee's Game of Death, which also involves the main character fighting his way up a five-floor pagoda to save his girlfriend. The movie was never finished due to Lee's untimely death, but the unfinished film has been released, and because of the posthumous nature of Lee's starring role, uh, the movie becomes quite famous. Why is this game named after one movie despite being based on another? Mostly timing. Game of Death is from 1973. Wheels on Meals is and Spartan X were both due out in the same year. And since the game was, quote unquote, close enough to the movie, they slapped the name on there to increase the sales of both. For those of you not in the know, the Famicom is the Japanese version of the original NES. And the game was sold in the States as Kung Fu. And this little tidbit is very near and dear to my heart because a very young bikini used to play this game all the time when he was a little uh, a, a lad and had a great time with it. It's a fun game. I never played this one. God, look at look at like the game the video games based on movies from this era. It, it's just a it's a madhouse, right? Like movies and the other one was uh, uh there was a lot of like cartoon based video games that had like nothing to do with the plot or anything like that or like cartoons and, like, based the, on movies like the the beetlejuice cartoon yeah. nothing to do with the <laughs> other than other than the titular characters where, where beetlejuice is like a hero and him and lydia are best friends like <laughs> <laughs> yes that's the world we used to live in people <laughs> like just watch some of those uh, Roger Corman movies. Um, have you ever seen like the the really bad 
uh, Fantastic Four. That's the Roger Corman movie. Oh, yeah. And like uh, Captain America, there was an old one. I think there was also a Nick Fury starring David Hasselhoff, if I remember correctly. There's also like a Doctor Strange that was made by Full Moon. <gasps> Ooh, I haven't seen that. I'm going to have to go yeah. And I, I can't remember if that's maybe called something slightly different, but it's like there's a Doctor Strange movie that was made by Full Moon. Oh, that'll be a trip. <laughs> but so it's it's ultimately pretty unlikely that Toriyama knew a lot of this stuff, right? But there's a serendipity behind the idea of Goku, who's a character that's based on Jackie Chan and Bruce Lee, being put into a situation inspired by a game based on to lesser or greater extent, depending on which version of Spartan X you're talking about, a film from, from both of these men, right? In addition, though, to all of these pop culture references, the tower itself is a stand-in for Shugyo. As Goku goes through what is essentially training, as assigned by Roshi, he ascends the tower. As he ascends in strength, both internally and physically, he ascends the tower. This also ascends the difficulty of his challenge, so we've got a perfect little microcosm of Shugyo in a simple-to-understand form. It's the higher you go, the harder things get, but the stronger you get in response. In Asian cultures, these traditional towers, the pagodas, have an odd number of floors. Toriyama makes Muscle Tower have six floors to show his readers that this, then, is a Western creation, but he has Goku start on the second floor, so he effectively only has to complete five floors, much like Bruce Lee in Game of Death, which is where Toriyama's primary inspiration comes from. You know, despite him saying Spartan X, remember Spartan X is based on Game of Death. Also, similar to Lee in Game of Death, he starts first with skilled, but comparatively to later battles, paltry fighters who serve as just like a warm-up for the true battles ahead. In expanded universe multimedia for the Dragon Ball franchise, it's shown that floor one is for infantry and floor two is for NCOs or non-commissioned officers. So the men Goku first encounters are above like the lowest level grunts and petty infantry. They're more sergeants and things like that. It's not a hard battle, but Goku does work up a sweat and he even takes off his winter clothes. Now, Major Metalatron <clears throat> has a pretty obvious to us at least influence he's arnold schwarzenegger's terminator just with some tweaks and he even says i'm back at one point which is just come on that is a clear homage to i'll be back <laughs> I, I mean was there even any tweaks really when you think about it <laughs> uh his hair is red <laughs> like uh okay fair enough i'll give you that so when Goku blasts Metalatron with his Kamehameha and thinks he's killed him, he claps his hands together twice and bows. Uh, in the Japanese, he utters a brief prayer, the very prayer for which Nam from the Tenkaichi Budokai was named. Uh, the two claps are to alert the spirit world that a new spirit is on their way. Goku does this despite Metalatron trying to kill him. This is because Goku doesn't view his opponents as evil enemies. He just kind of sees them as people who help him practice his Shugyo. If we're looking at the counteracting opposites, as we should be, uh, we see Metalatron as a giant, muscle-bound beast of a man. So aside from being a machine and not a man, what's his flaw? Ego. He's overconfident. He believes the fight will be over shortly simply because he's so big and Goku so small. 
Goku undercuts his ego because he has none of his own and thus wins the fight. Remember, too, that all of the Muscle Tower stuff is insight into General White. As Toriyama often does, he uses the entire characteristics of a battle and the lead-up to a battle to reveal things about the antagonistic character. He shows his characters for who they are through battle. It's not just Metalotron's ego on display, it's White's as well, and his obsession with muscles and brute strength. This is what's broken by Goku first, as he works his way through General White's tower and, metaphorically, the man's psyche. Yeah, all this this muscle tower stuff is it's a metaphor for Goku's Shugyo, but it's also like each level is a metaphor more or less for general white himself. That's, that's the whole thing. (laughs) He's, he's, he's more interested in the projection of a strong image as opposed to actual strength. And you see this through Metalotron, not actually being a big, strong man, but from being a machine, in, in the next few episodes with Murasaki not necessarily being exactly what he seems. Right. Really kind of reinforces that idea. Yes. We're starting to see, we've got Game of Death, which is uh, an obviously a, a Chinese movie uh, being a Kung Fu movie. And, you know, we've got a Jackie Chan movie, which is also Chinese. But we're starting to see more and more of these Western influences come in, right? We talked kind of about the the Nazis in the, in the previous episode and the bondness of some of it. And now we've got Terminator popping up. We don't know this for sure, Bikini and I, but, uh, and because Toriyama has never talked about it, but <clears throat> we wanted to talk a little bit about why we're seeing at this point in Dragon Ball more of the Western influence kind of start coming in. It's kind of an interesting discussion to have. And it's, yeah, it's a lot of conjecture. Uh, but, you know, it kind of stands to reason that it's happening because Toriyama's just, and Torishima are, if nothing, like pretty smart businessmen, actually. True. They have They have been watching what sells. And they've been paying very close attention to that, especially Torishima. I mean, that's that's his job. <laughs> his, his job is to is to be the editor that gets this stuff sold. What sold in Dragon Ball so far? The tournament, well, the Tenkaichi Budokai. Exactly. When he started bringing in these kung flu, kung kung flu. <laughs> oh boy, edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> When he starts, <laughs> when he starts bringing in these kung fu influences from movies, so then what's kind of the next sort of extension of that is bringing in more movies and the movies that he likes. And 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 uh, I mean, obviously, there's there's Terminator, but like we said last episode, when we were talking about the Red Ribbon Army in general. There's like a lot of ties to things like Indiana Jones, James Bond. And these are all things, uh, movies from like, well, James Bond's kind of a whole range of like 60s to like the 90s. I think. Yeah, which would and then be stuff Toriyama. Indiana Jones is, is the 80s, which is around the time when he's writing Dragon Ball. So it seems to us like maybe he's got these movies going in the background as, as he's doing his work. And as time progresses, he starts accruing like more movies that he enjoys. And then there's, I'm pretty sure around this time, you would mention that 
Japanese studios had realized they could start importing films and making just as much money as making their own films. Is that right? Yeah, it certainly becomes more of a trend in the later 70s and then in the 80s and such is the the Japanese cinema I mean it's this is it's more of a thing of the 70s but then this is also what causes more importation is in the 70s cinema especially in Japan is on the ropes TV has taken over you see this like Toho who is one of the biggest companies in i mean they are the biggest film studio in japan is now they're making movies like with stock footage they're making movies for pennies on the dollar because they're they're just trying to barely stay afloat Dae, who was one of the biggest studios in japan they go bankrupt the last the last two camera movies that were being worked on Every day that the director showed up, he was not sure that he had any more money to make the movie or pay his crew. At any point, he was like, I was expecting a call that was like, you're done. We have we are out of money. <laughs> Oof, that's bleak. And that's the that's the 70s in in the late 60s, but definitely the 70s making movies in Japan is for a lot of these productions. At any point, you could get a call that's like, yep, we're out of money. Go home. You're done. And so if you have a dearth of homemade content and it's poor quality because you're not throwing any money at it, well, then where are you getting content from? You're importing it, right? Western cinema becomes more and more popular in Japan throughout the 70s and then into the 80s. And yes, TV too, obviously. Um, because this is the rise of television and home video, but this is this is now when Western culture starts mixing into Japan a lot more. And Toriyama is actually really at the forefront of this. We talked about this when we talked about was that when we talked about Toriyama? Yeah, it was when we talked about Toriyama and his difficulties breaking into the industry, and what right. ultimately even got him noticed by Torishima is that he uses English text. Yes, exactly. Torishima's like, nobody else was doing this at the time. I just thought it was interesting and different. And yeah, his writing wasn't very good, and his drawings were just okay, and his stories were bad. (laughs) But he's like, but his style was so unique because he was using these English characters. And that's... So Toriyama's at the forefront of, of bringing Western culture into Japanese pop culture, really. And I, th- I also think it's kind of interesting how he, he's he's at the forefront of, of sort of introducing Western pop culture to Japan, and then Dragon Ball itself becomes a lot of the first experience that most Westerners have with Japanese culture, and we start getting that sort of cross-pollination going on. Right, yeah. Yeah, it's like a, it's a, it's a circle. It's a circle. There's no corners. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> this this is some of the earliest that that you really see this happening, which is why I think people kind of struggle to say, oh, was he influenced by this? Because it seems a little early for that. But I don't know. Again, conjecture. I mean, great example of that was just this last episode. We were talking about Red Dawn, and we weren't even sure if that was in the right time frame. Right. 
you know, and, and yes, it's it's definitely conjecture on our part, our power, ugh, our part, and we're not sure that it was the the first, and it was at the. But it, I mean, it certainly is more at the forefront than, say, for example, a certain franchise about a three hundred foot tall fire breathing dinosaur lizard. Uh, I, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I've never seen this man before in my life. Um, but yeah, no, in the in the early 90s you start seeing Godzilla movies that are very heavily influenced by western movies um there's like time travel and terminator references in the 1991 film the 1992 film has Indiana Jones references in it uh the 1995 film has aliens references in it so like to say that to say that Toriyama is among the first bringing this kind of stuff into the pop culture spectrum in Japan, it, it it cannot be that far off when movies 10 years later are referencing things that he's referencing in 1984. It's really just about him, we think, saying, okay, well, when I pulled stuff in that was that was that I really liked when I was a kid, it this this started to become more popular. This Dragon Ball. What if I pull so in? Let's do more of the same. What if I yeah. pull in some stuff that's popular now? And I think that's that's also what makes Dragon Ball catch on with people. Is yes, the anime lags a little behind the manga, and we talked about that a few episodes ago, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. we're talking about how the whole uh, like the twenty twenty like chapter the manga gap trying to stay so far ahead of the, yeah the twenty chapter gap exactly. yeah and. It, he's he's so much at the forefront of that in the manga that even by the time it hits TV screens, like 18 months later, that stuff is actually still popular. <laughs> and so it sure. and so it still catches with people, and they still and they still like it. And and yes, that's I understand. That's a that's just a the world was different in the 80s type of thing, you know. Well. I- I mean, I, I don't know if it's just an 80s thing, though, because, I mean, you still do see, like, intellectual property crossovers for a lot of, like, different marketing reasons and stuff these days. Yeah, that I mean, that's true, for sure. I just think it's... If if you see a manga reference something and then uh, and then the anime reference it and they're 20 episodes or 20 chapters behind, which is 20 weeks, you know, the, the, um, the pop culture news cycle of 2021 means that you have you have missed the boat <laughs> like <laughs> that's true versus versus you know like the 80s where something will i mean hell talk about when i, I, I mean i can think of i can think of like some marvel comics from like the early 2000s that have references in them and i go back and read them now and i'm like oh that's super dated <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's just how the, i mean I, I go back to one of the things i always go back to when i talk about this is when i was a kid and i don't want to say what age kid but but still when i was when i was a younger a younger gelatinous blob one of the most popular movies was jurassic park that oh, movie yeah. was i swear to you that that movie was in theaters for like a year right like i'm not crazy I, in thinking I, that <laughs> You know what? I'm actually I'm gonna look that up really quick. The movie was in theaters for a very and it took like twelve to eighteen months to hit home video. That movie stayed relevant for a very long time. And that happened in the eighties and nineties all the time, and even the early two thousands. 
And I'm looking at it right now. It's it was in uh, box offices for over a year and a half. Yeah. <laughs> it, it it released in June of 1993 and have, and finally wrapped up in October of 1994. That doesn't happen anymore. No, it absolutely does not. You could push that in your manga in 1984, and then it could hit the anime in 86, and people would it would still be popular. You know, sure. it would yeah. it would still be like a timely reference. So he, he lucks. I, I'll say he, in addition to being among the 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 earlier ones to do it, he lucks out on timing in that he's 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 in that pro, that time period where that kind of a time lag wouldn't kill the reference. Right. Exactly. I mean, the the evidence is starting to mount up that like, unless someone tells me otherwise, this is what I'm going with. <laughs> <laughs> we we do a really good job here of convincing ourselves that we're right. Hey, we're just, we're just that smart. Um, no, if, if anyone has like, you know, if anyone out there listening knows better, I feel free to drop us a line, hit up our Facebook, hit up our, you hit up our Twitter, but <laughs> I do not, I do not check into that very regularly. Yeah. There's not much activity going on there. Right um, now. you could drop us a line at final forum podcast at gmail.com. And yeah, let us te- teach us, learn us a thing or two. <laughs> That's right. We're not above. We're not above being uh, reprimanded for being wrong. Yeah, and I'm not above doing a retraction either. So think about it, folks. You could interact with us, and what we could do a whole episode on how we were wrong and how you were right. And then you'll feel really validated. <sighs> and you are. Just so you know. Quick, quick aside. Was anybody else bothered by the fact that Goku uses his power pole to skip the first floor of the tower, but not to go directly to the top of the tower? Man, don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> don't think about it too much. Don't think it's, it's a cartoon. Let it go. Well, I mean, if you look at the design of the tower, it, it looks like there's a. Oh, is that called a parapet? Close enough. I know what you're talking about. It looks like there's one at the second floor, but then like floors three, four, and five are more just like the wall. Like there's nothing to land on. Right, but I'm saying like, could, like, because he already, we already know he's taking the power pole all the way to the moon. So like, what couldn't he just like put himself on top of the tower? But if you go to the very top, do you know that there's an entrance inside from the very top? Guy could just, you know, punch a hole in the floor, honestly. Yeah, but you're Goku and you don't think about this stuff. <laughs> also true. I just like I just thought it was funny that he, he gets to the second floor and then General White's like, ha, you're going to have to enter at the second floor and fight your way up to the top. When anybody with half a brain would go, well, no, I've got I've got a power pole that can put me on top of the tower. How about I just skip all of the floors you want me to fight through? Arguable whether Goku has half a brain. I guess is the well. Yeah, that's that's fair. That is fair. <laughs> we talked that about the reaction, his reactivity thing. That's a that's a definite Goku staple. You know that he he figures his his stuff out just in the middle of doing it, kind of. So, well, I mean, it's I guess it's also kind of appropriate to the character that he's not going to take the easy way to the solution. He's he's going to brute force it. Yeah. So does it still well. bother you? I mean, it does a little bit, but. But it, it's at least consistent with the character, so I suppose I can forgive it. Yeah. Look, Bikini, 
All your panicking, and it seems like the carbivore may be turning back to leave. This little scare will have been nothing more than an odd encounter to note among the many we've already had. They don't look like they're leaving or retreating to me. Well, what do they look like they're doing to you, since you're not an expert on behavior as well? Admittedly, I'm not, but they appear to be gathering back near the vents in formation, as if they were waiting for some covering fire before venturing out. And why is the Ventuvi opening its mouth? Probably to produce the fighter with the high fighting power so he can come down here for some negotiations. Now you believe the Carbivore have a strong fighter? Well, I don't see any other explanation. What the hell was that? You doubted whether there'd be an invasion and an ancient space whale has just fired a massive beam out of its mouth and destroyed our barracks in their entirety. That's what. I still say this will be over before we know it. Once our men collect themselves and begin firing our plasma energy cannons, a target that big won't stand a chance, and as an invading force, the Carbivore are hardly impressive. But listeners, we will take our leave of you here. Will this be the battle of the century? Or will it all be over before we next speak? Will you reach your final form? What the hell was that? Dreadnoughts. Ten dreadnoughts. Ten? Well, listeners, what will the outcome of this battle be now that it's gotten much more interesting? Find out next time and help us achieve our final forum. written and produced by Tom Gwelly. It is performed by Dan Kinney and Tom Gwelly. Our webmaster is Dan Kinney. Our theme music is provided by YouTube content creator GVG Kit. Want to learn more about the Dragon Ball universe, including concept art, behind the scenes interviews, and recommendations from Jelly and Bikini? Connect with us on social media, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Final Forum Pod. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you receive your podcasts. And of course, make sure to share with your friends and family and help us spread the word of the glory of Lord Frieza. The Frieza Force thanks you for your listenership. 